Hunt, fish, listen, repeat. Broadcasting from the Camp Grilling Studios, this is Sporting Journal Radio. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. That's a new personal best pike here. Now here's your host, Brett Amundsen. That's right. Welcome to the show. Thanks for watching this on Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, Instagram, or maybe you're listening to this on the Sporting Journal Radio Network. Thank you for tuning into this station right here. Or maybe you're downloading the podcast on any of the podcast apps that you can get the show. Thank you very much. I'm Brett Amundsen. That's Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart over there. How you guys doing? Yo, doing well. Doing great. All right. Thank you for uh, for tuning in. Thank you guys for being here, of course. I You're hunt welcome. always will. I fish and always will. Not only do we try to uh, fight for your rights as an outdoors person, whether you like to hunt, whether you like to fish, whatever the case may be, but we also like to bring you some of the work that gets done to make these opportunities possible. We got a really cool interview for you this week with Vijay Patil. Uh, he's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey up in Alaska. Alaska and Anchorage, and he bans snow geese. Not only does he ban snow geese, but he puts tarsal bans on a certain segment of the population of snow geese up there. Dan held one of those in his hands this year. A bird got shot in South Dakota. North and- Dakota. Oh, yeah, North Dakota. I was just going to say the Dakotas, and then I, <laughs> I just you put the wrong South. I was just so used to saying South Dakota for everything, it seems like, We've lately. we talking a lot about it lately. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it, it was one that he was a part of, so we wanted to find out what that research was, so we got him on the show to tell us about that. Not only did he tell us about what research that is about, but he told us about a brand new, well, it's, it's not quite brand new. It's 17 years, years old, but it's a new colony of snow geese in Alaska. They uh, started uh, having Alaska as their breeding grounds, their nesting grounds, and there was never snow geese there really before, and it's growing at a giant rate every year. Yeah. So what's going on? Why are they there? Why is it growing so fast? Where are those snow geese going? We'll ask them all these questions. It's fast. If you like waterfowl like we do, it's fascinating info. I love banding info. And uh, we learn quite a bit about snow geese from uh, VJ coming up later in the show. Uh, we also I love it. He loves it. I absolutely do. <laughs> While catch and release is popular for, for most people when it comes to sturgeon, if you'd like to keep one, we're going to tell you how you can do that, and when you can do that, and where you can do that. We also talked Pool 4 on the Mississippi River. We fished there the other day, Dan and I and uh, my brother Wade, Dan's dad. And how did it go for us? We'll tell you. And then uh, Tim DeMeo from Fine Line Outdoors just happened to be fishing right next to us on the river. We watched him catch uh, like a 28 and a half inch walleye right there. We pull up to this new spot like, yeah, let's fish here. Before we even had our rods out, we see him hook up and it ends up being uh, this really nice walleye right here, 28 and a half inches. Uh, So Tim will join us later in the show to talk about fishing the Mississippi River, and he does some guiding down there. So we're going to learn a little bit more about what he likes to do when he fishes down around uh, Pool 4. Dan, who is this week's show brought to us by? Yeah, this week's show is brought to us by Haybell Heights. Haybell Heights Campground and Resort. Book a trip to Devil's Lake. Learn more at haybellheights.com. Ottertail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital. Plan a trip for this summer at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Camp Grayling. Catch the Grand Slam Lake Trout Pike Grayling and Walleye. Fish Camp Grayling in Saskatchewan this summer. Onyx. Nor'east stand with Onyx. Mid-Migration Outfitters. Come hunt waterfall out of heated 10-man pits and comfortable lines. Learn more in at midmigrationoutfitters.com. And Prairie Sportsman. The new season is underway now. 
Watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel or check your TV guide for local air times. That's the best one I've done in a few yeah, weeks. That was pretty good. <laughs> nice job, I'm Dan. getting out of my head. <laughs> if you want to be a sponsor of the show, go to sportingjournalradio.com. We got the info there, and uh, we can help get your message out if you'd like. There's a new Prairie Sportsman coming up, and this was kind of a fun one, Dan, because you and I did a lot of the filming for this one. Uh, this is a bow hunting episode that we filmed, and, and really, we just kind of went out and filmed a bunch of stuff while we were hunting and I kind of looked at it and I was like this is this would be a good story to talk about why I bow hunt and I grew up gun hunting and uh, once I switched the bow I never really looked back like I'll still use a, a rifle once in a while if I'm in the right area and I, I can't bow hunt for whatever reason or I'm just trying to meat hunt or something like that but why do I enjoy bow hunting we'll talk about it on the new episode of Prairie Sportsman coming up and as you saw there in that video footage uh, there's also some research going on in the Twin Cities about fox and coyotes and how they interact with each other and why more people are seeing fox in the metro area and why they're headed there tune in Sunday night at 7 30 p.m. on Pioneer PBS or watch the show starting Sunday on the brand new Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. No. <laughs> no. Guess not. Wow. Alex Trebek doesn't want to watch it, I guess. All right. <laughs> That's great. Uh, David, do you, do you mostly uh, bow hunt for deer or what do you like yeah. to do? Bow hunt and muzzleloader. Oh, yeah. So I've, the last few years I've gotten more into the muzzleloading and I mean, living in the shotgun zone, which sounds like it's not happening anymore, it sounds like. Yeah. Is that official now? I don't know if it's official yet or not, but I've heard a lot of talk about it. What's this now? Yeah, they're getting rid of the shotgun. Of the shotgun. That's, oh, that's I, been the rumor that's been going around. I thought yeah. that got shot down. Maybe it did. It might have. I haven't seen uh, an official announcement. on We should probably look that up. Yeah. Well, while David and I are talking about this, why don't you get on the Google machine real if quick? Somebody else can switch back and forth. David, click between those two things. Work, work your magic. David's going to crash course on how to run the David's podcast. Right video podcast. Uh, why? I mean, I can tell you some of the reasons why I like to bow hunt. I'm not going to give them all the way because I want to do it on the, on the Prairie Sportsman episode this Sunday night. Make it tune in. But, you know, Obviously, number one, you get to hunt a lot longer, David. Yeah, you get the good job. There you, go. See, there hey. it is. <laughs> you get the full season, and I don't know. I I find more reward out of closing that distance and making a good shot and being able to trick an animal into twenty yards and being yeah. able to make an ethical shot, quick kill, and I don't know. That's that's why I like it. You get so much natural behavior from wildlife that it... Uh, there it is. I guess it is going... It's on its way. It's, it's okay, official, so it's not for sure yet, but it's... It hasn't been shot down. It's moving along it's moving according along. to the Star Tribune, yep. it looks like. Yep. Oh, and two fishing lines on the Minnesota River? Yeah. Oh, look at Neat. that. Breaking David, news. you never fished the Minnesota River. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, there you go. Potentially uh, an end of the shot. And from what I've, I've had a few conversations with the DNR about this, about why there's a shotgun only zone in the southern part of Minnesota. And I always thought it was a safety issue because it's the prairie, right? So uh, there's nothing knocking bullets down like trees or hillsides or something like that. But obviously down in the bluff country, there's plenty of hills down there. So it became more about uh, making it more challenging to shoot a deer. And oh. less about safety. Hmm. It was like, well, let's give him, let's give him a shotgun and see him try to kill <laughs> some deer, and uh, your chances go way down using a shotgun versus a rifle. Um, but it sounds like that's all going to change now. So, Potentially, yeah. 
I think a lot of people are happy. Some people are not happy. Like I've seen a few petitions going around on Facebook about it saying, oh, we can't have this. This is terrible. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm just going to sit back here and keep my mouth shut. uh, (laughs) The old men don't like change. Yeah. Well, I hate shotguns for, for deer hunting. I hate it. Absolutely junk. Terrible. I've missed broadside deer at 30 yards shooting a smoothbore shotgun at him. Are you know, sure just, that's the gun? <laughs> yeah. Got a bent barrel. And possibly, yeah, possibly the, the guy shooting <laughs> a bent as well. Barrel. But I, like, I literally would, would have preferred having my bow with me that day when I shot at that buck. With uh, I did it on Prairie Sportsman, as a matter of fact, missing ice buck with the shotgun. And I would much prefer having a bow with me. And, I, you know, it's funny that you bring up an ethical shot, David. And I've, I've probably told this story on the air before. And I'm not going to talk about who I was talking to or where I was, but I had a conversation with somebody one day and it was a younger kid and he, he hunts down south and he hunts deer with dogs, apparently, which I didn't even know must be down the southeast what? somewhere. And he said that hunting, he said that a pack running dogs, running deer down with dogs, hunting dogs is more ethical than bull hunting. I, find I don't believe I heard you say that. I, and I, I kind of bit my tongue for a while. I'm like, nah, it's not worth getting getting into it with this kid. And then finally, <laughs> he kept saying it, kept saying it. And I finally stopped. And it was a room full of people. And I just like, stop. Everybody, stop and listen. I have a very important message. You're an idiot. <laughs> like, what how, What do you mean? A, a pack of dogs ripping apart a deer is more ethical than taking, you know, double lunging a, a deer with a 320 foot per second bow? Come on. Or a heart shot. Yeah. I've seen a tip over in 50 yards, you know. that. Ah, oh, couldn't believe it. Anyway, I love to bow hunt. Watch the episode Sunday night on uh, Pioneer PBS or on the YouTube channel. Uh, Red Lake's got some new limits, Dan. They do. Uh, they're back to the four fish in four fish, one over 20. These regulations have continued to change year after year. It's bounced back and forth between, I think last year it was three with one over 17. We've seen years where it's been uh, uh, four with one over 17 until like December where you keep one over 20. Um, But now it's four for the open water season. It's going to be four, one over 20. You can read more at sportingjournalradio.com. We have all the information straight from the Minnesota DNR on our website. Check it out at that place and see my little (laughs) mug there. That place. Um, It's by sportingjournalradio.com. I already said it once. I don't need to say it again. That place. That place. So uh, read all about it there. But uh, if you're going to Red Lake for opener or at any point this season, that's what you can keep four fish, one over 20. I was definitely in fishing mode. Uh, what about a week ago or so? Uh, we fished Red Wing, we fished the Rainy River, like m- some of the m- most spring fishing I've probably ever done, we've done this year. And now I'm just like, I got turkeys on the brain like crazy. <laughs> and I just found out I'm going on a pretty epic turkey hunting trip with Corey Loeffler here. And you're probably going to hear all about it next week here on Sporting Journal Radio. So tune in or watch it because. Not quite sure where we're going to be. We might we're we're sleeping in a tent for about a week, chasing turkeys around in uh, I don't know five states, four, five, six states. I don't know. I'm not sure. We might end up in Argentina for that. I have no idea. <laughs> Your passport hasn't come yet. You're not in here. You're not going to Argentina. Okay. I'll make it as far as Texas that. probably. But uh, we'll uh, we'll be doing this show probably on the road next week right here. So tune in well, on this station or uh, watch us. us. Will be. Watch us on YouTube or uh, Facebook or anywhere else that you get the show. All right. Coming up, we got some really cool snow goose research with VJ Patil. He's a wildlife biologist at the USGS up in Anchorage. Um, and we're also going to talk uh, fishing sturgeon and walleye with Joe Henry and also Tim DeMail, all coming up on Sporting Journal Radio. 
Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. Well, our time on the Rainy River may have been brief, but uh, this part of spring is always kind of brief up there. That little extension you get for walleyes, and then it turns into sturgeon, and that's what's going right now. Although the the weather, I just saw an image from uh, the Rainy River from somebody up there, and uh, it didn't look much better than when we were up there with Joe Henry, who joins us now from Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, it, it, it sounds like uh, winter doesn't want to let go right now. Well, luckily the sturgeon don't care too much, and that's that's a good thing. You know, uh, it's I think it's time for a sturgeon. They call it a sturgeon sturgeon excursion. But uh, you know, I'll tell you what. You know, uh, the sturgeon season right now it's really kind of cool because you know the walleye season up at Lake of the Woods ended on uh, April 14th. It goes through April 14th. So then from April 14th to the Minnesota fishing opener, you can still fish sturgeon, and that's what a lot of in fact a lot of sturgeon anglers almost wait for that spring walleye season to be over. Oh yeah. So there's less traffic on the river. Yeah, I hear that all the time from the sturgeon guys. And I'm in I'm in a couple of the different sturgeon groups too. And I think Darren Troseth posted the other day on, on Wednesday uh, an image of a guy snow blowing his dock. <laughs> he <laughs> made the comment about the Royal Dutchman is getting ready for spring or something. I can't remember what it was. But um, yeah, I know a lot of guys wait for the walleye fishermen to leave so they can go there and it's not a long long wait at the at the accesses there. And I, I say it over and I know I've said it before. I'll say it over and over again. And catching in catching a fish that could be you know 80, 80 inches long that's amazing uh, no matter where you are well and you know if you look at this picture we have in the screen here it's kind of cool too because you know this you can see that the rainy river has really made progress so the whole river is open four mile bay is open and then you know heading uh um into the lake you know there's a lot of open water in the lake so some some of the sturgeon anglers are actually fishing at the mouth of the rainy river where the ice pack is on the, on the lake and um it's just kind of a unique time up there right now and you know obviously there most people are using the old sturgeon rig you know which is a 18 inch lead of 60 pound test line and a, a no roll sinker usually three to five ounces you load that circle hook up with a big glob of night crawlers or you, you use a combo of crawlers and frozen emerald shiners and typically you fish the holes of a river. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of fish are being caught. It's a, it's a relaxing way to fish. It's uh, not that challenging. You just go find some of those holes and, and just go fishing. And the other thing that's kind of cool, Brett, and you know this from firsthand experience, you know, you would think that a fish so big, and by the way, you catch little sturgeon, you catch big sturgeon, you catch medium sturgeon, you catch everything. You get suckers too, right? But, uh, <laughs> kind of inside joke. But, you know, the funny thing about it is when those big sturgeon hit, they tap that rod just like a sucker would or a catfish or something, right? Yeah, and then they end up being giants. Uh, you, you can't tell. It's not yeah. like because it's such a big fish, it's going to take and just bend your rod over right away. It's a little tink, 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 tink. You know, and then what you do with that circle hook is you don't set that hook real hard. What you do is you just tighten up and you reel and get tight. Because what happens is that circle hook, if it's down in the gullet or down in the throat of a sturgeon, the purpose of that sturgeon, or that circle hook is to slide out and then end up hooking, you know, a, 
uh, that sturgeon right in the lips. So that's perfect. It's a good conservation hook, actually. Now, most people are catching, uh, catching and releasing those sturgeon, but there is a keep season coming up. And obviously, the population can support this keep season. And really, the numbers of fish that, that get kept is relatively small, isn't it? Well, the DNR, yes, it is. And the DNR really keeps close tabs on it. So if you wanted to actually catch a sturgeon that you could potentially keep, you know, the way most people cook them is they smoke them. And they're a real rich meat. You know, the, the keep season begins on uh, April 24th. And it goes through, I think it's uh, May 7th is when the, the keep season goes through. Now, you can keep a sturgeon that's 45 to 50 inches long. Or you can keep one that's over 75 inches. Now, in order to do the, the keep season, what you do is you have to purchase a, a sturgeon tag. They're very inexpensive. And then uh, if, if you harvest a sturgeon, you get one sturgeon per calendar year. You actually tag it like you would a deer. And it's really kind of a neat thing, but they keep real close tabs on it. They normally never reach their quota because most people are doing catch and release. If you're going to do catch and release fishing, you don't need to buy a sturgeon tag. It's only if you plan on keeping one. Well, I just got a new smoker, so I would love to, I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm big on catch and release, especially for the big fish, but I would be uh, okay with trying sturgeon in this new smoker again that I got. And those, so, and the way I understand it too, is that fish is big enough to get uh, a healthy amount of meat for, for oh, yeah. consumption, but it's also not digging into the, the breeding population uh, too much. It's right at the beginning of that, if I remember correctly, something yeah, like that. I think you're spot on in that. And again, the DNR really isn't concerned about the number of sturgeon being kept. You know, we have a very, uh, ever since the Clean Water Act and, and you know, there's, they're not netting sturgeon anymore. The commercial fishing on Lake of the Woods is no longer. You know what, uh, all those things combined have created an incredible sturgeon population. So we yeah. not only have a lot of fish, we have a lot of big fish. They can, they track the sturgeon really closely and they can see those fish getting bigger and bigger and, and multiplying. And I, I, the reason I was smiling, Brett, is because the one time I harvested a sturgeon for uh, smoking, uh, a buddy of mine worked at a meat market in central Minnesota. Oh, hey, I'll take it to our meat market and get it smoked. So, yeah, he took it to the meat market and got it smoked and brought it home to all my buddies. And, you know, about uh, five days later, when I finally got a hold of it, that thing was uh, three-fourths gone. They said it was real good. <laughs> well, it kind of happened to me, too, uh, last time when we, we kept one a few years ago and we did it for Prairie Sportsman. But uh, it's good. And uh, such a unique fishery up there and the opportunity. So it's a, I, I mean, People should check the regs, but there's a keep season and then another catch and release season, and then it closes uh, because they start to spawn here in, in mid-May. Is that about right? So April 24th to May 7th is uh, the keep season. May 8th to May 15th is catch and release only. And then starting on May 16th is when the closed season begins. That goes all the way through June. So starting on July 1, you can start fishing sturgeon again. Um, so, and you know what, it's kind of cool because that sturgeon season goes all the way to, you know, through May 15th, while the, the fishing opener for walleyes is uh, May 14th. So it's it's really perfect timing. And of course, uh, then everybody's gonna be all excited about catching walleyes again. Yeah, um, can I go, can we go back? I'm ready to go back. <laughs> Whenever you Let's are. Go. Oh, this weekend? Yeah. I, okay, I will say this. We, our weather, you know, going up there, hey, you're supposed to get uh, numerous inches of snow, 35 degrees, 35 mile an hour winds, blah, 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 blah. Kind of intimidating. But I will say, we got that ice fishing gear on. We got on that boat. We had a hoot, didn't we? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, that suit I got is is warm and I didn't get cold. I got a little saturated at the end because of the kind of that rain snow mixture that we got there at the end. But uh, uh, I didn't get cold at all. And we didn't have, we were in the one boat that didn't have a top. I think Jamie's boat had a top, had a heater. He had a stair. I think he had a live band in there or something. <laughs> Eating food. Oh, it was luxury. steaks. I didn't want to go back to the lodge. <laughs> well, I remember, remember, so yeah, Jamie had that boat. And then remember we saw... Uh, um, got Alex with uh, the Hughes craft. Oh yeah. That's, and remember he had literally an enclosed room and they were sticking <laughs> their head out the window laughing. I think Steve was coming off there. there. Yeah, no, it was fun. And you can see that video of us fishing on the rainy a couple weeks ago up there before the walleye season closed uh, during our 500th show celebration up at Riverbend Resort. You can see that on YouTube right now and see how we caught fish. And in fact, we will make them if they haven't heard yet, we changed tactics and all of a sudden fishing just was on fire for us. But we're not going to tell you what it was here. You have to go watch the video. Go to the Sporting Gen Sporting Journal Radio YouTube channel and watch our, what do we say, Ray walleye, rainy river fishing tips in a snowstorm. You'll know it when you see it. Brad, I got to tell you, though, I did talk to somebody right after we fished. And I'm not going to give away the technique, but they use that same technique. When I tell you that they caught more than 10 fish over 28 inches, and some of them were over 30 inches in a four-hour period. Unbelievable. They hit it right. You know, the water warmed up just a little bit. There was a window there. But they used that same technique. And uh, so I tell you, it was game on for those guys. Well, Joe. Yes. If people want to learn more about fishing the Rainy River for sturgeon or walleyes or gearing up for the for the fishing opener coming up in May, the walleye opener in May, what should they do to get more info? You know what? Everything's on our website. Check out the Lake of the Woods Tourism website at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Northern Minnesota's Walleye Factory is a year-round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Well, snow goose hunting in the spring or, or even in the fall for that matter has become one of my favorite waterfowl activities. I think snow geese are, are fascinating. The journey they go through, the big flocks, the mass of massive amount of numbers and just the resiliency of the species overall. Uh, and the fact that we have to have a season or, or we've had a season, a conservation order on them in the spring to reduce population numbers. It's just, uh, I mean, they're a pretty hardy bird. And uh, the more and more I learn about them, the more interesting they get to me. And Dan was on a hunt recently in um, one of the Dakotas, we'll say, and you guys shot uh, a banded snow over there, Dan. Yeah, we did. It was uh, a pretty, pretty unique bird. Um, it's one we probably won't see ever again in our lives. We had, uh, it was a juvenile snow, but it had this uh, special green tarsal band. And if you're a waterfowler, you know how special that is to see. And we're all pretty jacked up and uh, yeah, it was pretty special, but we didn't know a whole lot about it until we got the banding report. And uh, it's just, they're cool to see and it's fun to get the information on them and learn learn more about them they're considered a trophy but to me that information's the coolest coolest piece about them so. absolutely you know and band we rarely see banded snows in general but to see one with a tarsal band now i know your photoshop skills I was like, All right, Dan, <laughs> they're not that good messing well that's true <laughs> ask anybody <laughs> they'll, but, they'll tell you uh that's a pretty special bird to see right and then you know when we were talking to our buddies about it a little bit we learned you know it's a young bird gosh i didn't know there were 
tarsal bands going on, um, snows or young snows. So I did a little bit of research. I talked to Nick Dockin, who I've gotten to know over the couple over a couple of years, and he's up in Alaska doing research up there. And then he said, this is the guy to talk to. He's the guy behind this research. And it's Vijay Patil, and he joins us now here on the show. He's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey up there in Anchorage, Alaska. Vijay, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how do you get excited when you see reports when like, oh, my gosh, that was a bird that I that I banded and that's where it got shot. Wow, that's really cool. Do you get excited about that? Like like hunters, like what Dan was talking about is me personally. I love learning about the migration patterns and where these birds have gone, what they're doing, learning about their habits, how old they are. Uh, I love learning about that stuff. Do you is it is it work for you or do you get excited about that stuff? Oh, no, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. I mean, I will say I tend to see more bands than probably the average hunter since we're putting out, a, you know, a thousand or so a year on the species. But, yeah, the the band reports that we get from hunters through the reportband.gov website and the bird banding lab are a huge part of my research. It's how we learn about their, their survival rates, the effect of harvest, where they're going during the wintering grounds. And like you said, we get to learn about how long they live and find out that some of these geese are living for more than 20 years. And yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a huge source of information and it's one of my favorite parts of the job is interacting with hunters and getting to see pictures of these birds that I've known as goslings on the breeding grounds and seeing what happened in the rest of their life. And, you know, I don't get down to the winter and grounds that much. So I think it's a two way street. I get to learn a lot and I get excited whenever a, a hunter gets in touch with me. So this tarsal band, this bird uh, was banded. Uh, it, it was a young bird. What was the data on it, Dan, again? Do you remember? I'll pull it up here. Um, so you can see there, it's, well, it was Juvie banded last year in uh, July 31st, 2021. I was too young to fly. I was a female and banded up in, uh, those are some cities I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> somewhere somewhere in Alaska. North Slope. We'll just say well, I can say North Slope. It's the other ones I can't say. But... Yeah, uh, pretty neat to see. Yeah, and then shot in North Dakota. You do a thousand of these a year or so. Do you ever, is there ever a band report that comes back? You're like, I know him. Like, I remember banding that bird. <laughs> I don't know that I've remembered a single band just because, you know, there's so many cycling through. Um, but yeah, so that was that was last year, and that's near the village of New Exit. Um, and that is at a breeding colony on the Colville River Delta. Uh, which is on the north slope. Uh, it's about 50 miles west of Prudhoe and Dead Horse in the oil fields. Um, and it's a pretty young snow goose colony uh, where uh, really from, you know, these didn't start nesting there until maybe about 2005. Oh, really? And since, yeah, it's a very young colony that's just taken off and exploded. Um, it's growing at something like 30% per year based on the aerial surveys and some of the banding data that we've got. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we're really interested to understand what's going on with that population and what's driving that rate of increase and how they're spreading out and using the habitat and how the snow goose population is starting to affect um, other birds in the area and that sort of thing. So that's is that basically uh, the reason for this research that's going on then right now? Well, uh, that is sort of the focus now. I will say um, this project, the banding project that that bird was banded for, um, started as a project to understand really climate change effects on waterfowl breeding in the Arctic. So we wanted to look at um, reproductive success and mortality um, associated with year-to-year -year changes in the timing of when the snow melts and when the birds are able to start nesting um, and when the vegetation starts to gr green up and grow and how that affects the goslings. Um, but 
as I said, when we first started this work, there were hardly any snow geese nesting um, in this delta, in this population. And then as the snow goose population established and started to take off, we realized that that was really what we needed to focus on and understand, you know, how that would affect Brant and other uh, species that are nesting in the same area. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really the right now. So do you, do you think that the reason that they, they started breeding there is because of what they're doing across the tundra? Are these like mid-continent snow geese? Are they just spreading out because of what they're doing to the tundra? the breeding grounds up in the tundra that's a great question i will say we don't really have the answer just yet um that's one of the questions that i want to answer the most so i'm working on some population models now using that banning data to try to understand how much of the growth we're seeing on the colville and in alaska is attributed to um alaskan conditions like nesting success in alaska and how much of it is due to immigration from outside and I will say that the, it's still preliminary, but the results we have right now say that we shouldn't be able to get the rate of increase we're seeing unless there is some immigration coming from another population. So, and so, yeah, it it seems plausible that there are central uh, flyway birds that are they're moving west, and that that might be that may have been what started this colony and what might be continuing to fuel this incredible rate of increase. That's crazy. So, uh, so I don't have that answer yet. And that, that colony started in 05, is that what you said? Um, somewhere around then. Okay. Um, and actually, for the North Slope in general, um, until relatively recently, there had been hardly any major snow goose breeding areas there. Um, there was a small colony of a few hundred that was near Prudhoe Bay um, that's been around for a long time. But, you know, for decades, uh, the North Slope just was not a major player in snow goose breeding. And the Colville is one of a couple of sites. Um, there's also the Pickbuck River Delta, which is, you know, uh, maybe 50 miles farther to the west, um, that have, or have established just in the last couple of decades and have mm. really taken off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when you think, when I've thought about Pacific Coast snow geese, those are the ones that come over from Russia generally, isn't it? And then you think of the birds so that come... A, Go ahead. Yeah, so there's two sort. Sorry, there's two sorts of populations that we think of um, within the the Pacific Flyway. There's the Western Arctic snow geese, which include our North Slope birds, at, but the majority of those um, up to now have been breeding in Canada, mostly in this colony on Banks Island, which is in Nunavut. And then there's also the Wrangell Island population, which is in Russia. Um, and those birds do kind of mingle with the Western Arctic uh, snows down on the wintering grounds, um, but they take somewhat different migration paths. So most of the Wrangell Island birds are kind of migrating down along the coast, whereas our birds are heading east, kind of staging in the 1002 area or around there for a few weeks in the fall and merging up with these Banks Island birds. And then they kind of head south uh, past the Rockies through the, the prairies in Alberta in that area and then kind of split and mostly they go into like California and Central Valley, but some of them go to wintering grounds that are farther to the east where they're sort of overlapping with central flyway birds. Okay, this wasn't a planned question, but how, <laughs> how do these birds know where they're going? I I want to, <laughs> I think that's a question we nobody seems to have an answer for. Like, uh, is there, are they using the magnetic poles? Are they using landmarks? Are they following other birds? How do they know where they're going? Is it is it imprints? Yeah. That's, that's a great question. And, you know, for different birds, the answer seems to be different. So a lot of birds are able to sort of navigate based on magnetic field lines. 
Uh, with the snow geese, based on their migration tracks, it, it does kind of seem like they're following these these landmarks where they're sort of heading down along the Mackenzie River Delta and then, you know, along the edge of the Rockies and then splitting down from there once they get down into the U.S. So I, I think a lot of it is sort of geographic. And, you know, they they do seem to be sort of um, learning from the, from their parents. So the, one of the reasons why we put tarsal bands on the um, young females but not the young males from this population is because the females will tend to um, – migrate back up to the breeding colony where they were born mm. uh, whereas the the males will sort of disperse and you know go to other breeding colonies once they meet up with other folks on the wintering grounds um so there does seem to be some learning some using of landmarks and you know maybe some other things we just haven't learned about yet yeah the women go back the men like to chase women wherever they're going back to right <laughs> i mean that <laughs> right <laughs> How are, uh, do snows, do they, how long do they pick new mates every year or what, or is it, are they, uh, they kind of, they, uh, they will up? stick with the same mate, but you know, if their, their mate is killed then they will yeah. you know, acquire a new mate. I got a feeling this could turn into a really long interview. So I better, because <laughs> I love this stuff. So I'm, I'm going yeah, to keep thinking, let's, let's, let's back up to, uh, this current research with that tarsal band, um, what why like how many birds are you banding and how many are getting the um like the metal leg bands and how many are getting the tarsal bands yeah so you know as i said we try to band about a thousand uh new birds each year and this is a banding program that's been going on for um a little over a decade we've been banding every year since uh 2011 except for 2020 where we had to cancel because of covid um, and each of those birds we capture gets a metal band. Um, and then when we recapture them in subsequent years, we can write down the metal band number and get some information about survival and, and fidelity to the site and that sort of thing. And then, as I mentioned, we've only been putting the tarsal bands, the plastic green guys, on the young females. Um, and that's because our main interest was being able to recite these birds when they came up to the breeding grounds. And we just weren't able to do that with the males because they were you know, sure. largely going somewhere else. And we don't like to disturb the birds or add tags or markings to them unnecessarily unless we've got a specific purpose for it. And since that was our specific purpose, we decided we're only going to add that extra band to the young females since we have a chance of seeing them. So every young um, female means, basically is getting one of those then. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And you know, that being said, although like we did it mostly for our purposes, resetting up north, um, you know, it's still, we get a lot of useful information from folks down on the wintering grounds. Even if you don't see the bird or shoot the bird and report it, we have birders who take pictures with their telephoto lens and can give us the combination. And that still gives us great information about the population status and survival rates and all that. What are you using for the metal bands? Are they, what kind, what kind of material? Are they stainless or what are you using there? So different, uh, bird, Types of species will get different types of bands, but we do have aluminum metal bands mm -hmm. we put on these birds, um, and they last for an incredibly long time. Are neck collars still being used, or has that gone away? Uh, yeah, so neck collars, for the most part, are not being used for this type of reciting, so you don't see these big plastic neck collars too much anymore. Um, they're, they tend to be a little bit harder on the birds compared to the, the leg bands. And so again, we're trying to minimize impacts wherever we can. 
Um, we do still use some net collars that are outfitted with uh, GPS trackers. Um, mm. There's some really incredible technology now where these lightweight collars with little solar panels so the batteries last forever. Um, they can automatically transmit to and send out location data on the cell phone network. Um, so we can get all this great remote migration um, information from these birds. Could you tell me? Only, could you tell me sorry. where those are right now, by any chance? <laughs> that, that'd be great. That's, I actually, I think that study's pretty much wrapped up. I don't think any of the colors we put out are still online anymore. Okay. Um, unfortunately, but <laughs> it is an incredible source of information. I mean, the technology that we've got now is just remarkable compared to a decade ago. Yeah, I shot a, a mallard a couple of years ago that was part of a research study here in Minnesota that Bruce Davis did, and he was putting backpacks on a bunch of them. And unfortunately, he had just put it on about two weeks before the season started, and I ended up shooting it early in the season. So there wasn't a lot of data, but what was <laughs> but what was there? And I, apo I apologize to him. He goes, no, this is, this is good because we're recovering the equipment, first of all, but we'll mm -hmm. still be able to take everything we've learned off of that and the, the the study was to determine how much hunting pressure actually forced birds to migrate and so mm -hmm. they were able to determine on opening weekend the bird traveled about seven miles to another uh, another marsh uh, we figured due to hunting pressure but then we could figure out what fields it was going to it was a hen mallard we figured out what fields she was going to feed in what where she was roosting i mean you could figure out the daily pattern of this bird even for the two weeks it was just a, a wealth of information that was just fascinating so he sent me a little map with all the all the lines of where this bird went and then after a couple of days in the southern marsh it flew back to the original one after the hunting pressure i suppose kind of died down or, or maybe it got kicked off of that one and pushed back over or whatever the case may be but it didn't leave it didn't migrate because of hunting pressure in any case uh so yeah. It, it, yeah there it is right there it, and it was so funny because well i've told this story in the show before i don't need to get into it but i was hunting with a bunch of buddies and one of them they had gone out to eat the night before we had gone out to eat the night before and one of the guys left his car keys at the restaurant so that morning we were getting ready to pack up and head home and he had to go back to the restaurant to get the keys well everybody else on the trip was like ah oh, let's go and you know have a beer and some lunch or whatever and i said well i'm going to stay here and just kind of hunt hunt in the morning and i ended up sending him a picture of this banded banded mallard with a backpack on it and they were all uh pretty jealous of that it was it was pretty comical awesome. but um yeah and like you say like we get a lot of information even just short-term behavioral information of you know movements in the habitat from these birds even if they get shot right away so you know we don't want hunters to feel nervous about calling in a bird with with a radio tag or something like that um and i know sometimes folks really want to keep the tag because they want to have a mount with this really cool thing on the bird and most of the folks i know who put out radio tags like that have some dummies sitting around yeah. dummy tags so if you call it in, we want the tag back because it's expensive and there's lots of data, but usually we'll be happy to send you something that looks just the same so you can get that mount set yep. up the way you and, want it. And I got a replica for mine, so that was uh, that was great. And that's important. I mean, uh, all that data, that's important. I mean, obviously you get some from birders who just spot, spot these birds here and there, but you want to hear from people. I mean, that's the whole point. Like hunters basically are the number one source of info for researchers, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, waterfall banding is really like the, the, the largest citizen science research program that I know of going on today. Um, so we couldn't do the analyses that we do and understand the population status of these birds without 
the input from hunters calling in these bands. So we talked about this relatively new population of snows that you've been researching and it's been growing 30% a year. And some of that is most likely due to an influx of birds that were maybe breeding somewhere else uh, uh, in the in the northern regions up there. But overall, uh, the hatch has been pretty good or how was the hatch this year up there? Um, this year, I actually, I don't know. And or last year, I guess. Unfortunately, we weren't there for nesting last year, so I don't have uh, those numbers. But just based on these aerial surveys that are done each year during the brood rearing period, um, the population, you know, was almost double during the brood rearing period last year from what it was in the aerial surveys the year before. So I think they did before. And you alluded to how snow geese are just incredibly impressive and resilient. And that's exactly what we see. Like every year they have pretty amazingly high nest success. You know, the parents are just excellent at defending their nests and, and hatching successfully, and they just do a good job. I mean, even without the immigration, I think their population would be growing fast because it's great habitat and they're great at what they do. So we all know the story of what they're doing to the habitat up in the, you know, their nesting tundra grounds up there. What are they doing? What have you seen? Uh, this is probably a great way to monitor what they're doing to habitat, being that's relatively new colony up there. What are they doing to the ground up there? Yeah, that's one of the exciting things about studying this population is getting to see how these habitat impacts might develop. I will say that the the environment at this population in Alaska is very different from the environment and, you know, the populations in Hudson Bay and, you know, the Central Arctic uh, flyways. So we don't necessarily expect the impacts to be the same. And for the first half of this study period up till now, we haven't really seen major impacts. We've done studies on gosling growth and found that they're still growing at higher rates than most other populations. There's plenty of food for them. And actually, there's some research showing that as permafrost thaws and the coastal um, habitat sinks, it's converting some freshwater meadows into this salt marsh habitat that's their favorite thing to raise their young on. Um, So in a sense, it seems like the amount of food out there for them might continue to increase with some of the changes that we're seeing. Um, But I will say, you know, we've just in the last couple of years, as the population has gone, you know, through the roof, we are starting to see major changes in the vegetation. We've got grazing impact transects set up and um, to measure long-term changes. And that's going to be the focus of the work this year. And we're just starting to see those impacts. And I'm really excited to look for evidence of habitat degradation in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's a picture and Dan, maybe you can do a quick Google search and find this. There's a great picture and I'm not sure where it came from exactly, but it's a small fenced off square. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can see it it looks like a golf course around it. And then it looks like CRP inside there. And it's to show the effects of, of, uh, you know, snow geese foraging up there. And I'm guessing that that is from uh, this place called La Perouse Bay in central Manitoba. Um, that was actually where I got my start studying snow geese oh. when I was an undergrad. Um, and that was this, yeah, this colony where the, the population skyrocketed um, several decades ago. Yep. Um, and yeah, you can see that they just totally overgrazed the surrounding landscape. Um, and there what happened was once they had sort of mowed down the vegetation, the um, as the water evaporated from the bare ground, it brought a lot of salt up to the surface. And so it created this sort of salt-killed, um, highly saline landscape where the plants couldn't grow back. Hmm. You know, as I said, I'm not sure that that's exactly what's going to happen uh, at our site. One of the differences is the Hudson Bay area 
the ground is actually rebounding because it's recovering from the weight of this massive ice sheet sitting on top of it during the ice age. Whereas, you know, at our site, the ground is kind of sinking so that this area that can have salt marsh vegetation is continuing to expand. Um, so there's there's some interesting differences, but as I said, just in the last couple of years when we went back, we were starting to see these sorts of changes where we, places that had knee-high vegetation went back and it looked like the geese had took, taken a weed whacker to it. Yeah, huh. that's amazing. I'd never heard that about the salt coming up through the ground like that and keeping any new growth from happening. Um, that's, that's interesting. What, did you, so did you, were you always interested in snows or what got you started in that field? Yeah, so I actually sort of came to snows through my interest in Arctic biology, uh, as opposed to, I know a lot of folks get into this kind of Arctic work through their interest in waterfowl. And for me, it was the other way around. But yeah, when I was an undergraduate, I was looking for a summer job and I had a professor who had this field camp up in Hudson Bay where the snow goose colony was and he took me up there and that was my first introduction to the arctic and my first introduction to snow geese and just you know what an incredible species they were and how profoundly they could affect you know who, the environment who was that them. uh that was a guy named evan cooch um okay. he's a population ecologist who's been really involved in um this piece of software called mark which is one of the main tools we use for analyzing market capture data uh, but it's also that project is led by a guy named uh, Robert Rockwell with the American Museum of Natural History. Rocky, you may so be I've, familiar I've, with it. I've had him on the show before, and he, okay. <laughs> I, I thought doing that snow goose research would be fascinating until, until he told me he'd been in like six or seven helicopter crashes. It's <laughs> 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 like, wait a minute. Yeah, I haven't been quite that, that unlucky, but I also haven't been doing it nearly as long as he has. So, yeah, so I was just, you know, a, a dumb little undergrad who got to tag along on that project years ago and that kind of hooked me and then i did a bunch of different kinds of work working with other arctic species and circled back to snow geese when i got this job at the usgs hmm. it's uh it's interesting research and i don't know how much uh you, you yeah i'm sure you're aware of it but i don't know how much your research involves uh this avian influenza this uh avian flu that's really affected uh, snow geese and canada geese and other waterfowl all the way i mean uh hunters throughout the dakotas and and up and down the flyway here in the states just saw um dead birds everywhere or birds falling out of the sky i mean it it, it definitely seems like this year it's been a bigger outbreak than years past yeah, that's my understanding too. And I will say that the disease monitoring is not really my area of expertise. So I'm trying to coordinate closely with some other folks in my office who do uh, a lot of the wildlife disease monitoring to understand what's going on with this outbreak and what it might mean for these birds and the breeding populations. But we're definitely gonna be um, keeping in touch with the disease folks and trying to make a plan so that we can do our work safely up on the breeding population. and make sure we know what to look for so we can understand how this outbreak is spreading. Uh, but it's something for hunters to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's wild to think that, I mean, how long do you think these birds had it before it becomes fatal for them? I mean, just to, to fly that far and then just all of a sudden fall out of the air, are they, you suppose they're catching it on the way down from other birds? It just kind of keeps snowballing as they migrate? I really don't think I can answer that question very yeah. well. I don't know exactly at what point they got it but you know there are a number of different strains of avian influenza that have different levels of lethality or severity for the birds um and you know there's sort of like our flu there's always like something that's circulating in the population but as for what's driving you know the sudden outbreak of this more lethal strain i really don't know you were part of 
some research last fall about influenza A viruses in Alaska wetlands. Is that right? Yeah, and I was really just assisting with some of the um, survival analyses or the analyses to understand how long the virus itself was surviving. And this was some work that was led by my colleague Andy Ramey and other folks in my office, the Alaska Science Center, where they wanted to know um, if and for how long some of these avian influenza viruses could persist in the landscape. And so they're actually taking viruses from birds, from swabbing, swabbing birds' cloacas, and inoculating them in natural ponds out in Alaska. And what was kind of amazing was we were finding that some of these viruses are actually persisting in the landscape, like not in a bird, for as much as a year. Um, so there's, it's not just that there's sort of reservoirs within the bird population, but there's there's viruses that are just in the environment in the water. And for that to, to stick around in water for over a year and go through the 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 freeze thaw cycle, uh, it's kind of amazing to think about that. Yeah, yeah, you know, this was my first foray into working on the sort of virus analysis with Andy and his folks, and yeah, it was pretty amazing to me as well. So what you need to do now is next time you put a, a, a tarsal band on, you need to take a picture of yourself putting it on there and then go on a hunt in Arkansas or South Dakota. And then this is a, have you ever heard this story about Nick Dockin? He, he put uh, a, I think a neck I collar so. on. And I know some other friends with similar stories. Yeah. <laughs> he put a neck collar, I think it was a neck collar on a, on a speckle belly on a white front. And then he was, I think he was on the hunt or, he was hunting with the guys that shot it. I can't remember the exact story, but basically he was in Arkansas and he was either with the guys that shot it either the day before or that day or something, but they ended up shooting the bird that I think he's got a picture of himself putting the neck collar on and he was there when it got yep. shot, which is pretty wild. Yeah, and I have another friend, Chris Nikolai, who you might know the name as well. He used to be at Fish and Wildlife. He's now at Delta Waterfowl, um, who is actually um, collaborating with us on some of this GPS collar work. And I think... He came up to my my site to put some GPS collars on snows, and then later on that year, I think he was looking at the data and realized that one of the birds he had just collared was flying over his house. Um, oh wow! Down in South. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff, man. What what is there any other wild migration pattern stories that you can share with us? Ah, uh, some, know, some. Um, yeah, I can't think of any of offhand i mean except that the journey that these birds make every year you know most of these migra migratory birds it's really just amazing to think about um you know they they fly from the north slope from the arctic refuge down to their wintering grounds in really just a straight push you know they might stop for a few days here and there and on the way up in the spring they do stage in the prairies for a few weeks but you know, it's, it's really a matter of, of days or weeks before they're from Alaska down to the California Central Valley um, or Texas, Louisiana. And it, that in itself, just the normal migration pattern they do every year is still just boggles my mind to think of it. That spring migration, even if you don't hunt, just witnessing it is something I think everybody needs to see. I remember the first time when I moved to North Dakota, and I, I didn't grow up hunting snow geese. When I moved to North Dakota, I had some buddies that were like, oh, you haven't hunted snows before? You know, let's check this out. And I heard about it, and it was one of those days where the big push was on, and I, I couldn't hunt, but I took two hours, and I just drove west. 
until I could find snow geese. And I remember just pulling over on this gravel road and it was just the entire horizon was just strings of, of flocks of snow is heading north. It was one of those good migration days. And I just sat there for hours watching snow just pile pile over the top of me when those adults head, head back north. They're, they're, uh, they're in a hurry. And uh, it's, yeah. it's quite the spectacle to see for sure. Absolutely. All right, uh, VJ Patil, uh, wildlife biologist with the USGS up in Alaska. Fascinating stuff. Um, feel free to invite us along next time you do some banning because we'd love to see it. <laughs> and we just said any excuse to go to Alaska is a good one. But uh, no, anytime uh, you find some interesting research and uh, want to come back on, let us know. Otherwise, we might reach back out to you some, at some point. But uh, thank you. I appreciate you coming on to tell us about that tarsal band and what research is going on there and just giving us an update on uh, a new colony of snow geese breeding in Alaska, which I wasn't expecting that to be part of this. So that's, that's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This, so. and you know, we expect the, the change that we're seeing in that landscape to continue. Uh, and I'll just close and say, like, I really appreciate you guys having me on and the chance to talk about the banding program and how important it is. So just remind all the folks listening that if you do get a banded bird, please, please report it. There's a website right on the band at www.reportband.gov. Uh, so we can get that information that we need. Well, you know, waterfowl hunters love their bands, but okay. I think the real trophy is learning about the migration research. Honestly, I mean, we all like to wrap them on lanyards or put them on mounts and all that stuff. But learning the behaviors of these birds is the best part of it, I think. Uh, VJ, thanks for the time today on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Did you know there are more than 1,000 lakes in Ottertail County? Yep, and I'm going to fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to ottertaillakescountry.com. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in on this station right here on the Sporting Journal Radio Network by downloading the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts or maybe you're watching this. Thank you very much. Make sure you uh, like this, uh, follow it, and uh, subscribe to us. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. We appreciate that. So uh, last weekend, Dan and I were back with the, the, the rents, the family time for Easter, for Easter weekend. Well, we like to combine our holiday weekends with fishing. So we went down and fished pool four down on the Mississippi. Uh, how did it go, Dan? Well, notice we haven't showed any pictures or <laughs> anything from it. Uh, yeah, so we'll just leave it at that. Man, it was tough and it was cold. And we had fished, we spent a couple of days on the rainy, of course, a couple of weeks ago for our 500 show party. And it was cold when we fished the rainy. It was colder fishing the Mississippi here last weekend when we were down there. I think it was 26 degrees when we launched. Too cold. Something like that. We should, it could have been ice fishing. I don't know. I didn't look at this. I, I feel I stay warmer if I don't look at the forecast. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's true. It's not true. Okay. Definitely not true. But we, we you know, and we fished and we fished and we were dragging jigs and Dan was running uh, Dubuque rigs 
big whatever and some plastics and we're like gosh we should be trying some different presentations honestly it was so cold i didn't want to i didn't want to start i was just lazy like it was it was vacation weekend we were filming we did we had the camera gear out we were doing some filming and we probably should have been a little more flexible in our presentations but we were bouncing around and we weren't seeing anybody catch fish i don't know how many hours we spent on the river six seven hours something like that all day all day yeah and i think and it wasn't a ton of boats out there but there's there's enough boats that we were keeping an eye on all of them and didn't see any nuts coming i think we saw five total fish get caught on the river on saturday uh two of them being catfish so those don't count but uh we tried a new spot we motored up the river and we were just getting our gear out and there was another boat there and just as we pull up we see the rod bend we're like oh the guy next to us in the boat's got a fish ended up being a really nice one so we pulled up took some pictures and i uh, got to know him it was tim Dumail who joins us right now he's from fine line outdoors happens to be a fishing guide down there and it just happened to be a 28 and a half inch walleye and uh, he joins us to talk about that fish and more right now on the show tim how's it going it's going great it's going great brad how about you guys Oh, not, not so bad. Uh, you had a better day on the river than we did. Yeah, I actually, before you guys pulled up, I had about a half a dozen fish that I caught. Um, and then right when you guys pulled up, I got that big one. That was 28 and a half and pretty close to nine pounds. Um, I would guess I did not put it on the scale, but it was a dandy. And then, um, you know, and, and I believe looking at that one that it was spawned out. Um, it, it did not have the big giant belly like you usually see them big 26 to 30 inches. Um, you know, it took a couple of pictures, you know, you, you did that. And then we looked at her and said, she's got to go back in the water, you know, and she, if she's stressed out at all from spawn and that's, let's get her in the water and catch her again someday, yeah. you know, and maybe next time she's going to be a 29 inch or 30 and she'll be 10, 12 pounds. So... Yep. You said that when we were looking at the fish, you thought it was spawned out already. I was surprised by that, Tim. Well, so previous in the day, too, I'd caught some, some nice eater fish, some saugers um, in the 17, 18-inch range. I caught one walleye about 16 inches, um, and they were males. Uh, but I did catch one sauger that was about 20 and a half, um, and looking at the fish, I'm like, okay, you have extra skin on your belly. Hmm. And if, if when, it, when it squeezed the belly, there were no egg sacs. Sure. So, um, like, I would be 99% sure that was a female and she was spawned out already. Sure. Um, you know, but for the most part right now, fishing's tough. Um, like you guys saw. Um, the, the thing is, is we haven't had stable weather. The water temp has been going up and down and up and down. Um, we haven't had that much sun. And with the moon phase, the fish are spawning right now. And they are spawning hard. Hmm. Um, so they're a little more difficult to catch. I think that water temp was around 38 degrees, I think, when we were there that day. What Had you been on the river much? Did that, did that go down from what it was? Or what have the temperatures been doing? Yeah, it was. I had, the spot you pulled up, we were about 40. Um, oh, yeah. That's right. And uh, literally about a month ago, five weeks ago, we had got to almost 41 degrees. Mm. And then we had a lot of runoff um, along with along with cold weathers at night. And what happened was the water temp actually went from 38 to 40 degrees down to um, 33. And um, 
I, I fished some areas that I was like, you can graft these fish all day long. They're there. They're on the bottom. You get a jig down to the bottom. You pick it up. You're, you're picking up underneath them. Um, they're there. They just, they don't want to eat. They're all screwed up, you know? Um, and then it just starts getting, the water temp starts coming up a little bit more. It starts doing a little bit better. Um, but, but we still need the sunny days. You know, if you look outside kind of behind me right now and you get wherever you're at, it's cloudy, it's rainy. Um, tomorrow's supposed to be, you know, mid fifties and sun. So that should warm things up. Um, 70 something on Saturday, Saturday, right. With a little chance of rain and windy, of course, which is fine. It'll warm the water up. Um, but then next week we're back into the forties. So, you know, the water will continue to warm now because of its color. It's got some really good color to it. Um, you can see about eight to 10 inches down. Um, but presentation right now is, is a big key that, that I've been finding. Do you want to you talk know, about uh, what you were doing? Because you, you, you were watching people drag jigs and not catching. So you were doing something a little bit different. You, you know, I started out in the morning at literally first light and I was, I like to catch them pitching. I like to pitch hair jigs. I like to pitch light plastics. Um, and I like to catch them that way. I love to feel the little funk when they hit, you know, and um, I started out in the morning, I pitched a whole shoreline, I pitched up shallow, I pitched deep. These fish right now should be anywhere from, um, that big one I caught in 20 feet, um, but the other ones I got in like 16, 17, but the, the walleye should be in the three to four feet range, the, the five feet, you know? And um, so, what I ended up doing is I never caught one at all, never even had a bite or a hit or anything pitching. And I moved out into some slack water and got into uh, about 20 or about 17 to 20 feet and just held it vertical. And when I talk about vertical, um, this is actually, I think you can see it here. I'll hold it by the hook. Um, this is a jig that I was using when I caught that big one. And it's just a three eighths fireball jig and it's a plastic bait called a Superdew. Um, this is a pro blue color one, and th this is the best know-nothing bait out there. And when I mean know-nothing, I mean these legs that they have on there in the, in the little skirt, you get it down to the bottom and you pick it up and hold it three, four inches. And you don't do anything with it. You don't jig it, you don't move it. Um, I've had so much better luck in the past and I will continue in the future to get the jig down to the bottom, pick it up and hold it three inches off. And you good graph, you're gonna see your jig down there. Um, the less movement, the better most of the time. I mean, I know guys are throwing blade baits and they're, they're you know, moving baits and picking up pretty good. And, you know, they're catching a few here and there, but I will tell you day in and day out, I do better with just vertical jigging. You know, whether, whether we vertical jig something like this which is uh um you know a paddle tail and what this does is you get to the bottom you pick it up and hold it and that paddle tail wiggle wiggle back and forth in the current so it's it's basically a do nothing bait um you also have you know your typical ringworms you know i like i like dragging these i like holding them um pitching them it, it all works good um these are the hair jigs this is one of my favorite colors blackhead purple bucktail and if you notice there's not a whole lot of bucktail on that yeah you don't need a lot hmm. 
if, if you have a bushy bucktail, to me, that's too much. It makes it too buoyant. Um, I tie my own, and um, if they don't want to hit a bare bucktail, I'll put I'll put like a Berkeley power minnow on it, power uh, three inch power minnow. Um, I do not like to get use live bait if I have to. I hate yeah. using minnows. Yeah. The reason I don't like using minnows is two reasons. One, I hate getting my hands wet; they get yeah. cold. <laughs> the second thing is I've found out over the years of using live bait when it comes to the minnows is that a lot of times you're going to have those smaller fish that are going to hit the minnow and they're going to kill it or they're going to strip the side or they're going to break it or do something. And you have these little minnows, these little fish that are just hitting the minnows. Um, the plastic baits um, that like the Berkeley power minnow, this is one of my other favorite one. This is a three inch Kitek swim bait. It's on a three sixteenths gold head, um, vertical jigging, dragon, um, really does well. Really, really does well. I gotta say, um, first of all, thank you. You know, as a guide, thank you for just coming on and like giving us all. You know, this is what I use. This is this is what I really like. And the best was when we pulled up next to you there, and we we're just kind of talking to you, and all of a sudden you just pitched that jig right into our boat. This is what I'm using. Yep. <laughs> Here yep. you go. It, <laughs> Does brilliant know, you, you, accuracy, by the way, too. Three guys and a, and a really expensive camera in the boat, and you dropped it right right between all of us. Yeah. Well, I I'm a bass fisherman by like trade, you could say. Um, I love I love walleye and bass fishing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I fish a lot of bass tournaments over the years and uh, traveled the country four years doing it. Yeah, there's a smallie from Malax, um, five five plus pounder. Yeah, nice belly, big fatty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, I, I like to do education. Like when I go out and I take people out, I, I want to teach them what I've learned over the years, you know, and if people want to know what I use, I, I, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I'll tell just about anybody what, what I'm using. And the reason being is you can have two people in the boat doing the same exact thing. Yeah. And if you're not in tune to what you're doing, you're not going to catch them. So, I mean, you have to be very specific on what you do. And I like to be able to educate people and say, this is how you do it. This is what I found that works really well. And there's so many times that I might learn something from somebody else, um, a, a client, a friend, another guide that, um, you know, the more knowledge out there, the better, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, it, it's just, it's great. Um, yeah. You know, Absolutely. so it doesn't bother me to tell anybody what I'm using. I don't, I don't really care. No, we appreciate that. And, you know, it was a cold day out there on the river and talk about not wanting to get your hands wet. Like w- we pulled up and we were fishing up kind of by the dam down there and there was birds flying all over from gulls mm-hmm. to pelicans and cormorants and geese and ducks, of course. And yeah, it was kind of cool and it was kind of slow. So I was taking photos and some video of all these birds whipping around. I'm like, ah, well, at least we got something to watch. And of course, at one point when some of the birds flew over, one of them inevitably pooped on me, <laughs> of course, while we were there. And I didn't want to, I didn't, we didn't have a towel in the boat. For some reason, we forgot a towel. I did not want to get my, I just let it, I just left it on my jacket. Like I didn't want to put my hands <laughs> in the water. It's still there right now. It's still there right now. I didn't want to wash it off because I didn't want to get my, my, I didn't want to do Get my oh. hands in the water or get my gloves wet because I knew it was going to be a right. long, miserable day if I had wet gloves the rest of the day. So, yeah, uh, no, that's yeah, great. That is. It was it was cold. Did you you fish? You spent a lot of time on that river. I, I fish 
I fish a lot. I fish every weekend um, and then some other days here and there. Um, depends on when I have people that, that you know, clients that want to go out. Um, but I fish all winter long unless it's below zero. Hmm. You know, if it's, <laughs> if it's anything above zero, I'll at least go down and fish for a few hours. You're talking about um, open water. Yep, open water. Open go down water. usually put in an average resort because that – that resort, um, the the Chris down there does an awesome job of keeping the boat landing open, um, so that you can put in there any time. He's a great guy. If you're down there, he'll he'll tell you what's going on, what to do, what to look for, um, what to use, the whole nine yards. You know, he wants you to be successful and catch fish too. And I I fish all winter long. I like it because there's not a lot of people down there. I can try different techniques i can hone in on things follow the movement of the fish things like that so it's a blast it's so interesting to hear you talk about not a lot of people down there because i have a love-hate relationship with the with the mississippi and the st croix honestly for that matter river fishing near near the metro and i know you're you're south of the metro there the twin cities Mm -hmm. metro but it still feels a little bit like a lot of people come down there obviously when the bite is hot or in the summertime they come down there and it gets gets pretty busy i've 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 put in it been a part of putting in at everts there and and had to walk a long ways from on top of the hill there and when we've done it it hasn't even been that bad yeah right but um, yeah there's they have a chris has a new uh a field area up there that they park in and they're you know you can get 50 boats up there easy um and then he shuttles back and forth you know, from the boat landing up and takes you up to your truck and then brings you back. That's um, nice. the, the landings are always kept clear. He's got salt and sand on there so they don't ice up. He's got a bait shop so you can grab bait if you want minnows, if you want plastics, blade baits, jigs, whatever, snacks. You know, he's got everything right there. Um, so, but I like the I like the winter like you were talking about, Brad. I I like to go down there because like there's nobody there there's there's so many days i go down there and you know chris will text me and you know how you doing you know i see you're out there yep i'm there at uh you know an hour and a half before sunrise and i'm up fishing three to five feet of water you know and catching walleyes and there's not another boat in sight and there won't be anybody yeah well it's winter time people got ice fish in the winter time it's funny how you can have an open water opportunity like that and fishing can be really good but people once mm-hmm. once they can get their portable out or they can you know they can get their their snowmobile that that's got auger racks on it and everything you know it's all outfitted for for ice fishing that's what they want to do but then once the ice starts to deteriorate it's time for open water and you hit the rivers and then and then jam those access it's like a a a continuous cycle for anglers around here i feel like um but i think it's neat to be able to fish open water when there's snow on the banks i think that's a Mm -hmm. kind of a it's not necessarily uniquely minnesotan thing to do but it's kind of a i i associate that with minnesota like you got to be pretty hardy to be open water (laughs) fishing when there's snow on the banks and your guides are are freezing up and you know it's not it's not easy fishing in those conditions no no it's not um the hardest thing for me is keep my hands warm yeah um you know I, i I usually wear jersey gloves, you know, just the brown light jersey gloves. And if I really get cold, I'll put two pair on. Um, but a key that I bought over the last couple of years is, and you can see how bundled, bundled up I am in that picture. Um, you know, it was cold that day. The wind, mm-hmm. the wind was raw. And, uh, but a heated vest. I, I bought one of those uh, lithium battery re- heat, 
heated vests and they're Bluetooth with your phone so you can change the temperature on them. Them things are, are the cat's meow. Interesting. I mean, it keeps your body warm. And I can't wait to use it for waterfall hunting this fall and deer hunting. Well, and I want to talk waterfall, but one more one more thing. Sure. Put that walleye picture back up, Dan, if you can. If you notice, it does look like she, her belly is a little bit loose right there. You can almost yep. she yep. almost looks like she is spawned out. So that that would make sense. Yeah, you can see my see my fingers in the belly, and I mean, there's not much pressure there, and they're sunken up in there. And yeah. when I flip the fish over to look at it real quick, it like. When after they spawn, if you flip them over, you can look, and the bellies will be like sunk in in the middle, um, and that's exactly the way that fish was. But you know, great healthy fish. You can tell by the picture that thing was extremely healthy, and I mean, she creamed that jig. There, there's just no two ways about it. I I actually had to get a pliers to get it out because it was down so far you couldn't even see it. Wow. Well, I was wearing my ice fishing gear and I was surprised to see a fishing guide in waterfowl gear. I actually kind of liked it because I love, I love waterfowl <laughs> hunting and being down, being down by Rochester down there. I bet you've, uh, I bet you spent a lot of time shooting geese. You know, I have, I, I, um, like I've been a waterfall guide since 91. Um, I've wow. guided goose and duck hunting here. I've been in Missouri, um, Southern Illinois and, uh, you know, we used to shoot geese down here like crazy. I mean, we had weather, we had snow, we had Silver Lake that kept open water so that we would have like, around Thanksgiving, we'd have like 40, 50,000 geese down here. Wow. And uh, I mean, we would, we'd plain and simple whack them. But uh, over the past few years, it's gotten a lot tougher. We haven't had the weather. Um, the city is growing, it's pushing things out. Um, and and the, the hunting has been, extremely tough you've had to be mobile and follow them around and get permission to hunt land that's been close to them hmm. you know that and that's the way things have been do you think you know we're out and around that lock parl area and even in recent years it hasn't been as good here either i mean you can still shoot geese and i'm sure you still shoot them down there but they, they don't mm -hmm. get the big numbers staged up like like you used to uh fergus I feel like Fergus has been hoarding all our birds the last few years. And when they freeze up, we're, we're frozen. So then you get the birds just passing right over and then they don't imprint on the area. So then, you know, are, are you, you know, in the future, are they just going to fly over at that point? Are they going to stop? Uh, I'll be curious to see what happens in Fergus over the next few years as that power plant closes down and, uh, you know, you still have the, the river open up there, but you definitely will have some different conditions. So I'm curious to see, I mean, do you think, do you think your Fergus is affected? What the bird uh, migration to Rochester? Oh sure, oh sure. Ferg I mean, Fergus Falls holds tons and tons yeah. of geese. They always have. Um, if they shut the power plant down up there, you're going to see a huge hit in it. You know, and and I thought down here in Rochester, um, when they used to have the power plant here and they kept Silver Lake open, we staged a bunch of geese. I mean, it was you could walk across them on the lake that's that's how many there was but with the dam there and they did flood control project there's still plenty of open water below the dam hmm. um but once they close the power plant down the geese will stay there but there's not nearly the numbers there there's maybe a third at the most and and they just they don't hang around well, they're coming down later and later because of the, the, uh, the weather and all, mm -hmm. obviously more ag production up in Canada as well, too. Some, uh, a lot more food for them up there. So it's changed, but of course, waterfowl hunting can still be, be pretty good. You just oh. might have to put a few more miles on 
trying to find birds and getting on get on some more land. Um, but one other thing that you do that I think is important that I want to talk about is you're a high school fishing team coach down there. How long yep. have you been doing that? Um, this is actually the third year. Um, Cass and Manorville is a little town to the west of Rochester. Um, small community, great community. Um, and I lived in Manorville for about a year and a half and got to know the fishing team. Decided, hey, my wife looked at it one day and said, hey, this is something you might be interested in. Maybe we should, you know, we'll donate to the, the fishing team. And, you know, I, I gave them a bunch of tackle and tackle packs. And through my sponsors, I've, I've had them you know, donate some tackle and some jigs and different things. And, um, they've been in there three years and they're one of the biggest fishing teams in the state. Oh, wow. Um, they have like, they do everything from little kids that they, that they do, um, like they'll do practice in like the, the high school. They'll do, um, uh, like shore fishing around some of the ponds and stuff like that. And then they do the virtual league, which is within an hour here. They go to and do some of the, like the Mississippi River, small lakes around. Um, and then they had the traveling team, which we, we would go to Mille Lacs and Leach and Pokagamon and areas like that. So um, it was fun to fish with the kids and, and to really see how some of the kids progress over the year. You know, there's a lot of them that really listen. They take it to heart. Um and they and they get it i mean they they understand what things are doing with them you know with the fish you know what what techniques to use how how to be sensitive with the baits and everything um and it's just been a blast i mean i do a lot of seminars with them we have a lot of great sponsors um shields is a big one shields Mm -hmm. is a big sponsor of the the satt and um i've just had a blast i mean the kids are great how many of these kids fished already and how many of them were new to fishing that have joined the team? Oh, I don't know if I can actually put a number on it, but like the little kids that are out, it's, it's fun to have them come out. Cause then we show them how to, you know, bait a hook, tie a hook, put a bobber on if we're you know doing some pan fishing. Um, the rest of them, when they get older, we're teaching them what baits to use, how to tie hooks, how to put baits on, how to take fish off, net fish, what you're looking for to fish, the whole thing. Um, so what's really neat is we have little kids that, you know, are kindergarten or first grade, somewhere in there, all the way up to seniors. So you get all sorts of different kids in there, and, and it's just great to be able to spend time with them. Well, just like the Clay Target League, even NASP for that matter, I think Mm -hmm. when people try to answer that question of how do we get more kids introduced to the outdoors, we've got a couple of great programs and and getting getting involved in the schools and using kids in schools to get them into the outdoors. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I try to, I donate a lot of my time as far as, you know, um, seminars and things like that and i go to the registrations when they're there so if anybody wants any questions to ask i can help out with that um you know it's it's just nice to be able to go and and talk to them and give them the seminars and answer their questions and you know not just the kids but the parents there's a lot of kids out there that the parents don't fish so the kids want to get out there and do it and we're just showing them how to what they need to do and it and it's fun you know, it's nice to get them 
into something because we all know there could be a lot worse things the kids could be involved in. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the trap leagues and, and the fishing and the different extracurricular activities that they have are awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's great. Uh, volunteering as a coach and uh, giving us some tips as a guide. And, uh, of course, chasing, chasing some uh, geese around. Sorry to hear about your, yeah. your pups. You had two pups pass away last year, or two dogs pass yeah. away? Yeah, I had a golden retriever that was like my family dog, my, my wife and my family dog. And then I had Barkley, which was my black lab. And uh, he was a, he's a fully trained waterfall dog and my best buddy and uh, had to put him down the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So ah, man. that was tough. Now it's just a matter of trying to get another pup when I get some time and, uh, you know, start the training on him and then go from there. there to me there's i love to waterfall hunt I, I absolutely love to waterfall hunt i love to goose hunt but i really love to duck hunt there's nothing to me like watching mallards come into the decoys yeah but it to me it doesn't do it without having a, a well-trained dog that can that loves it just as much as i do and i love to watch the dogs work there's nothing that makes me happier than watching the dog work yeah, and dogs are uh, part of, one of the best parts about it, of course. And it's hard mm -hmm. it's hard to watch those dogs get old and to lose two of them in a short amount of time like that is uh, it's terrible. How old was your lab? Twelve and a half. Oh, the lab was twelve and a half. Um, yeah. And what happened? Uh, he had a he had a growth on his spleen, mm -hmm. and it and actually was they don't know if it was cancerous or not and i didn't want to have, put him through surgery he was yeah. extremely healthy other than that but he had he had that and it was hemorrhaging so it's just better to you know say my goodbyes ah, that's brutal man tough mm -hmm. all right well um I wish you luck down there. Good luck with your with your new dog when you get one. And uh, <laughs> yeah. if people want to jump in a boat with you, how do they find you out there? Uh, they can go to the website at uh, www.finelineoutdoors.com. Um, that has all my contact information, um, has pictures, has rates, everything like that. Um, follow me on Facebook, uh, finelineoutdoors.com. Um, and just go from there. There you go, Fine Line Outdoors. What was that, Tim? Yeah. yeah, they can just shoot me an email. There's there's a contact page on the website, so they can get a hold of me there, too. Very good. Tim DeMail, appreciate the time here today on the show. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. It was great, guys. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.